Good evening and welcome. My name is Hal Jones. I'm the director of the Rothermere American Institute. And it's a pleasure to see so many of you here for tonight's inaugural lecture for the 2017-18 John Gilbert Wynant Visiting Professor of American, Hist American Government, uh, David's a hat. The Wynant Professorship and this lecture are a wonderful tribute to the life and career of a distinguished public servant. Gil Wynant served three terms as governor of New Hampshire in the 1920s and 1930s before being named first head of the Social Security Board when it was created by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1935. He went on to lead the International Labor Organization and then to become the ambassador to the Court of St. James in 1941. Over the pivotal years that followed, uh, at a moment when the stakes could hardly have been, hardly have been higher for either the United States or Great Britain, uh, he served as a key mediator in the relationship between those two countries uh, and coordinated a wartime alliance uh, that uh, brought both countries to victory. The professorship was established by Ambassador Wynant's son, the late Rivington Wynant, and his wife, Joan Wynant. Riff was a distinguished public servant in his own right, and Joan remains a close friend to this institute and this university, and we'd like to record our gratitude uh, to both of them here. David Sahat, uh, this year's visiting professor, uh, has been an outstanding colleague here at the Institute and at Balliol College, uh, with which the professorship is associated. David writes broadly on American intellectual, political, and cultural life. He's the author of The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible, and The Myth of American Religious Freedom, which won the Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians. He's speaking to us tonight on Politics After God. Thank you, David. Good evening. Um, I'd like to begin, if I may, by uh, recording my deep, deep thanks for the honor of being this year's Wynant Visiting Professor of American Government. I'm particularly grateful to Joan Wynant, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but uh, whose ongoing generosity is a boon. I hope not just to me, but to the entire REI. Um, I'm also grateful to my colleagues at Balliol, which I feel very lucky to have joined for the year. I suppose at the risk of drawing invidious distinctions between the colleges, which is not my intention. Um, it's, it's clear that Balliol is sort of chock-a-block with really interesting people who have been unfailingly generous to me. Um, and finally, I'm grateful to everyone associated with the REI, starting with the Rothermere Foundation itself for its steadfast support and vision, to Hal Jones, to Hugh David, who is here in the back, uh, for welcoming me and supporting me. I decided I would stop there because if I listed everybody that makes this such a lively place to be, we'd be here for a while. But um, let me say that it's been such a joy coming here every day, working, talking to people in the hall, coming to events like this, um, usually dressed differently. Um, <laughs> I, I can't express my appreciation enough. So what I want to do in this lecture is I want to take us back to the last years of the 18th century which is a time that I've been returning to a lot lately because it seems to me, the more I think about it, to be a really remarkable time of political possibility. Revolutionaries in the United States, in France, in Haiti, and then eventually throughout the Western Hemisphere proclaimed that a new era of human government was beginning with them. 
Modern marvels like the steam engine began to transform the social life of industrializing nations, first here in the UK and eventually throughout the Western world. Philosophers and thinkers proclaimed that a new era of human understanding was dawning and that enlightenment would characterize the human race from that point forward. Many people thought in all sincerity, and I think actually in all accuracy, that they were living through a turning point in human history. And among the most advanced thinkers of the age, that revolutionary impulse extended to religion. And it could hardly not, given the close connection between religion and the government that existed since the very beginning of European Christendom. Prince and priest each embodied hierarchical realms of rule. Both supported one another. The relationship was, of course, fraught. The Protestant Reformation made it more fraught. But throughout the Christian world, there was never any doubt that religious and political authorities relied upon one another, and that together they upheld the rule of God. Once the revolutions of the 18th century began, though, the entire arrangement became unstable. And many revolutionaries thought that a, a, a change in one arena, the arena of government, would kind of necessarily, even if not purposefully, require a change in the other arena, the arena of religion. And in the United States, which is, of course, where I'll be talking uh, about today, uh, this dynamic was particularly interesting, and I want to suggest to you particularly tortured. In 1787, when the former revolutionaries gathered in Philadelphia to draft the U.S. Constitution, they decided, in defiance of all historical custom, to make it a government without God. You will read that document in vain for really any mention of God except for a passing mention of the year of our Lord in Article 7. The framers prohibited explicitly a religious test for office on the federal level. And other than that, they had absolutely nothing to say on the subject at all. The decision of the framers to move toward political godlessness would exemplify an increasing trend that was um, maybe most evident in the French Revolution in a kind of extreme form. Now, the decision of the framers to leave God out of the Constitution has generated, inevitably, uh, a debate in the present. Some have said that the framers created an entirely secular government. Some argue that they couldn't possibly have created a secular government because state-level governments still supported religion even if the federal government did not. Others have pointed out well, okay, even if the federal government didn't support an official religion or didn't support religion in some official way, religious ideals still interpenetrated the state. I don't actually want to adjudicate these positions uh, because to my mind, the moment was complex and none of them capture what was going on precisely. So what I'm going to argue today is that this moment was one of partially realized possibility one in which the most secular of the revolutionaries achieved some but not all of what they hoped for. And the partiality of its achievement generated abiding tensions and disagreements that we still see today. So I think we have to begin, quite naturally, with this godless constitution. The fact that it was godless was not at all unnoticed at the time, uh, which now that I say that is a kind of understated way of saying it. Because as a matter of fact, the godlessness of the Constitution was one of its most controversial characteristics. When the Constitution was propagated, many religious leaders reacted immediately, viscerally, even um, aggressively, worried that this Constitution and the new government that it represented represented in some kind of 
fundamental sense of hostility to religion. Thomas Wilson, for example, of Virginia, complained during the Virginia ratification debate, and he's kind of exemplary of, of many other people. The Constitution is deistical in principle, which in his mind was not a good thing. And in all probability, the composers had no thought of God in the consultations, which they didn't. Now, this complaint about the godlessness of the Constitution was almost always connected in one way or another to chauvinism. And I could give you dozens of examples to show this. Instead, I'm just going to give you one that's going to represent the whole. You'll know, of course, the Constitution was drafted, then it was presented, then it was debated, and then it was ratified in various states. During the ratification conventions, then, a lot of people began commenting upon the godlessness of the Constitution, as Thomas Wilson did. And an article in the New York Daily Advertiser, uh, which, of course, was originally published in New York, but was then published all over New England, complained that the fundamental flaw, or at least the flaw that represented all the others uh, with the Constitution, was precisely that it had no religious test for office. And because it had no religious test for office, it would allow into office First, Quakers, who will make the blacks saucy and at the same time deprive us of the means of defense. Secondly, Mohammedans, that is Muslims, who ridicule the doctrine of the Trinity. Thirdly, deists, abominable wretches. Fourthly, Negroes, the seed of Cain. Fifthly, beggars, who when set on horseback will ride to the devil. Sixthly, Jews. And then, etc., etc. That's my favorite part. Now, these two quotes, I think, suggest the basic motivation of the critics of the Constitution. Those who resisted the godlessness of the Constitution wanted to preserve existing religious arrangements and often wanted to preserve, in one way or another, their own religious power. So how do we solve this? Well, the obvious solution, they thought, was an amendment to the godless Constitution, often joined to other amendments in a Bill of Rights. During the ratification debates, enough people were calling for amendments that it was clear some kind of amendment dealing with religion was very likely to be added. But it was not the chauvinists that dealt with the amendments. They were not the ones that were driving the amendment process once it actually occurred. The person who drove the amendment process was James Madison, the architect of the US Constitution, and the one actually who kind of wanted it to be godless in the first place. And the reason for that was, as he was working through his political theory prior to the Constitutional Convention, he simply dismissed religion from public life, precisely because he said it was often a, quote, motive to oppression. He did not, in any way, want religion to be associated with the coercive apparatus of the state. And so, once political momentum began to build for these amendments, he wanted to make sure that whatever amendment was added, however it was added, that it maintained the godlessness of the Constitution, and that it disallowed the kind of connection between religion and the government that it existed in the past. Now, I'd like to pause here and point out the tensions that are already present in this moment. Religious leaders wanted an amendment to preserve their religious privilege and their religious power. Madison wanted an amendment, to the extent that he wanted an amendment at all, to maintain religion, to corral religion, maybe even to exclude religion from public life. These are totally incompatible purposes. And you can see the fundamental incompatibility as the amendment process played out. Madison, as I said, drove the process. And he began in the opening session of the House of Representatives by proposing two amendments concerning religion. 
His First Amendment, which he wanted to insert in the text of the Constitution itself, between the third and fourth clauses of Article I, Section 9, read like this. The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. Now, you can see the expansiveness of this amendment. It would have made it difficult to discriminate against pretty much anyone for his belief or non-belief. It protected not religious groups, but individual citizens. And it kept the federal government religiously indifferent. Now, his Second Amendment went much farther. He wanted to insert it between the first and second clauses of Article I, Section 10. It read like this. No state shall violate the equal rights of conscience, or the freedom of the press, or the trial by jury in criminal cases. This amendment would have potentially invalidated all the state-level religious establishments, all the official religions that existed on the state level. And to be clear, in 1789, when this, uh, this uh, debate was taking place, six states paid churches out of their public treasury. Most states discriminated against non-Protestants, or non-Christians, or in a few cases, non-theists. So this amendment would have extended public secularity deep into the states. And the two amendments were a really thoroughgoing defense of public secularity at all levels of government. But you'll notice, he's not doing in these amendments what the people who are calling for amendments want. That is, he is not protecting the social role of Christianity because he sees none. So when he proposed this, the legislators thought, like, this is not going to work. And they began to make changes, especially once the proposals were referred to committee. His First Amendment in particular, which is this, was modified to read more simply and far less expansively. No religion shall be established by law, nor shall the equal rights of conscience be infringed. Now, you'll notice, this still defends the public secularity of the Constitution. It preserves religious freedom as an individual right, but it's getting shorter it's getting more attenuated, and that would be an indication of what was to come. Now, when this amendment went up on the, for debate on the floor of the US House, even the modified amendment caused concern. Elbridge Gerry, a representative from Massachusetts, which had an official established religion, and would until 1833, worried that the amendment would prohibit the rights of states to maintain such a religion, which you could see how he could get there. Peter Sylvester of New York, a state that did not have a religious establishment, still worried that the amendment discriminated uh, against religious people and that it would tend to, in his words, have a tendency to abolish religion altogether. Benjamin Huntington of Connecticut, another state with a religious establishment, worried that the amendment was not doing what it was supposed to do because it seemed to be protecting, in his words, those who professed no religion at all. Huntington's objection, I think, most clearly expressed the issue, which is that the goal of the religion amendment for people like Huntington was not to protect godlessness. It was to protect religion. Okay, again, Madison's purposes, the critics' purposes, they're totally incompatible. What do you do if you're a legislator in that position? You look for language that appeals to the various factions. So they took this, and they went with this. Congress shall make no law establishing religion, or to, to prevent the free exercise thereof, or to infringe the rights of conscience. Now this too would seem to protect religious freedom as an individual right. 
it would have kept the state from messing with religion. But in some ways, even though it's more expansive in some ways, you'll notice in one important way it's not, and that is the addition of Congress at the beginning. There's now a limitation of this amendment specifically on the federal level rather than this much more expansive amendment before. Now, that then became the House version of the amendment. Meanwhile, the Senate was working on an entirely different track. And we don't, unfortunately, know how the Senate arrived at their version because we don't have a record of debate before 1794. But when their version emerged from the Senate, they were doing something very, very different. This is the Senate version. Congress shall make no law establishing articles of faith or a mode of worship or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. If you read this carefully, you'll see that the Senate is doing something very different and is not remotely concerned to protect the godlessness of the Constitution. What the Senate version would have allowed was Congress to pay churches on a non-discriminatory basis. All it says is you cannot uh, 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 make laws establishing articles of faith, but you can pay everybody if you want to. Uh, it would also not protect any um, uh, non-belief. It does not protect an religious freedom as an individual right. There's no explicit right of conscience. Its main purpose would seem to be to prevent Congress from supporting one group over another. Okay, so just looking closely at the wording, you can again see the basic incompatibility of the purposes. Sorry to belabor the point here, but I'm driving to something that you'll see. The House version, which is still basically Madison's version, is strongly individual rights focused. The Senate version is strongly group focused and is really focused on protecting the rights of religious groups. Now, during conference then to work out these committees, or work out the differences, the committee kind of ignored the Senate version. And instead, they went with the House version and they just decided to change that to make it more like the Senate. They struck off Madison's phrase, or to infringe the rights of conscience, which would have used, been used to affirm non-traditional or even non-religious rights. It also rewrote this amendment to this, which is the final version. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Meanwhile, the Senate killed Madison's second amendment, the one concerning states, and Madison was unable to restore it. Now the obvious question here is, what does the amendment mean? Some have said it separates church and state. Some have said that it protects the rights of religious groups. I don't think either are right, and here's why. Let's look at the first clause. This is called the establishment clause. The committee has used a gerund at the beginning. You see that respecting an establishment of religion, presumably to maintain parallelism with the second gerund clause. What does it mean, though? to respect an establishment of religion. Does it mean that Congress shall make no law holding an establishment in esteem? That's one version. Does it mean that Congress shall make no law touching upon any facet of an establishment, respect in respect of something? Does it suggest that Congress cannot create a federal establishment? Does it suggest that Congress shall not interfere with state level establishments that then existed or that might exist in the future? Totally unclear. Or take this second clause, the free exercise clause. Let me ask a basic question. Whose rights are being protected here? Madison wanted to protect the individual rights of conscience. Does this protect the individual rights of conscience? The Senate wanted to protect group rights. Does this protect group rights? Does it perhaps protect the rights of the states? Again, totally unclear. 
The amendment is frankly a mess. So what does the amendment mean? The obvious, and I think the only answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> the committee of people who designed the amendment didn't agree on the purpose. Madison's original proposal was changed and reduced. Still, they couldn't agree. So they resorted to what the great historian Sidney Mead has called the amendment's laconic brevity and consequent vagueness. It can be read in different ways to different ends, all legitimately, as far as I can tell. Now, as it turned out, this debate over the First Amendment did not solve the wider debate about religion in American public life. And that debate itself became part of a still wider debate about the proper role of religion in politics at about the same time. And that's because while the House was working on amendments during the summer of 1789, French radicals on the other side of the Atlantic began to edge toward revolution. In August, the French National Assembly published the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen and embarked on a full-scale program of dechristianization, culminating ultimately in the Cult of Reason in 1793. Now, you can imagine for many of those people who were worried about the godlessness of the Constitution, the developments in France really freaked them out because in a certain sense, that was exactly what they were worried about. So very quickly, the French Revolution became an acid test for one's notions about the role of religion in a political democracy and on some level, the role of political democracy itself. The debate over the revolution, of course, took place on both sides of the Atlantic and no one was more important in that debate than the American revolutionary turned French sympathizer Thomas Paine. I'm sure many of you know that Paine uh, was instrumental in galvanizing the colonies in 1776 to revolt against Britain with the publication of Common Sense. Um, but Paine had actually left the United States in 1787 as the um, former revolutionaries were drafting the Constitution. By 1789, he was back in Britain watching the entire process play out from afar. And like many radicals, Paine was absolutely enthralled by what he was seeing in the French Revolution. So as critics began to attack the revolution, Paine leapt to their defense and began to defend the revolutionaries by harnessing a set of nascent ideas that had been circulating since the American Revolution. He then published these ideas in book form in two parts under the title Rights of Man. Now, part of Paine's genius, which you can absolutely see this in this book, you can really see it in anything that he writes, was his ability to address basic but difficult questions in clear language. And so he started Rights of Man by asking a basic but difficult question. He said, where is the origin of government? And he said, government really only has two possible places that it can come from. It can come out of a social compact or it can come out of somewhere else. And clearly the most best, the best form of government was that which arose out of a social compact. And the reason for that was, according to Paine, that it worked with what he called the natural con constitution of man. Humans, he thought, were innately gregarious creatures. They were inclined toward communal self-help. They relied upon one another. They instinctively understood, that is when uncorrupted, in his words, the mutual dependence and reciprocal interest which man has upon man and all the parts of a civilized community upon each other. A proper government then was simply an extension of this cooperative impulse so that human beings could accomplish larger collective ends. 
But most governments were not organized in this way. And if a government was not organized in this way, it had to be organized, as he said, around something else. And it was this something else that got him into trouble. Such a government, he said, either relied upon a carefully cultivated superstition among the masses so that they looked to the king as the representative of God, or it relied upon the brutal exercise of power, or still more often, it relied upon some combination of both. In either case, or in any case, the mixing of religion and government, Paine said in Rights of Man, pretty much always resulted in despotism. Now, you can imagine that this was inflammatory stuff in a world in which most governments relied upon religion to justify hereditary authority. And Paine's justification, given its clarity, given its trenchant analysis, given the way in which it seemed to fly off the shelves, then very quickly started to drive a wider debate about the proper role of religion in governance and, of course, about democracy itself. Now, within the American political leadership, the person most sympathetic to Thomas Paine, other than James Madison, was Thomas Jefferson, who was also, of course, a friend of James Madison. Like Madison, Jefferson rejected the role of religion in political governance. He said famously, I'm sure you've heard this phrase or this, this statement, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Now Jefferson, also like Paine, was delighted by the French Revolution. And he followed the controversy generated by the rights of man with much interest. The problem, though, was he had trouble getting the book itself, which was kind of scarce in the United States, until a Philadelphia printer decided to bring out an American edition. He was so interested in this American edition, he was so eager to read it, that he reached out to the publisher prior to publication and asked to read his copy before the American edition actually came out. The publisher agreed. Jefferson read it. He agreed with pretty much everything. And then he returned the publisher's copy to him and he appended a note that the publisher, much to Jefferson's surprise, then used at the very beginning of the American edition of the Rights of Man. This is what the note said. I'm extremely pleased to find that something is at length to be publicly said against the political heresies which have sprung up among us, <coughs> namely the rejection of the French Revolution and a stepping back from the revolutionary impulse. Jefferson's endorsement made it seem like he was the official sponsor of the rights of man in the United States, which he was not, even though he completely agreed with Jefferson's theories. So quite accidentally, Jefferson became the chief defender of Thomas Paine in the United States, and by extension, the chief proponent of the French Revolution. And at least initially, he was quite happy to fulfill that role. In 1792, after part two of the rights of man was published, Paine sent Jefferson six copies. Jefferson wrote back acknowledging the gift and then told Paine, go on then in doing with your pen what in other times was done with the sword. As it turned out, though, things were about to get more complicated for both Paine and Jefferson. The second part of Rights of Man caused an even more of a sensation, if possible, than the first. It sold 200,000 copies in the first year. 200,000 copies! I mean, this is a lot of copies in 1792. Various governments rightly became concerned, and the British government in particular began to move against Thomas Paine. 
Even before publication, they had reached out to the publishers saying, you might not want to do that. The publishers published anyways. After publication, government agents decided that they were going to make an example for Thomas Paine. And they brought him up on charges of libelous sedition. He fled Britain a step ahead of the authorities. He made his way to Calais and then to Paris. The French revolutionaries hailed him as a defender of the revolution. They gave him French citizenship and then they elected him to the National Assembly. Now, you can imagine that his American sympathizers were pretty excited by all of this. Joel Barlow, another radical, wrote Jefferson when he heard that Paine was being elected to the national um, government. Paine will do much good in the National Convention. They seem now to be removing the rubbish out of the way in order to lay the proper foundation for a rational government. We know, of course, now that those hopes would be tragically not realized and that this moment of political possibility was beginning to close. The French Revolution soon turned ugly. The terror began. Paine himself was caught. He had argued in the National Convention against taking the life of King Louis XVI, urging his compatriots to kill the king but spare the man. The Jacobins rejected that argument, executed both the king and the man, and then turned against Paine himself. Paine was caught. He wrote Jefferson announcing that he might return to the United States. But he had heard that his house and barn in New Rochelle had been burned down, quite likely by one of the many people who objected to his arguments. He didn't have any resources. He didn't know what to do. Jefferson responded with silence. And it's here that we see the closing of a political moment. Madison and others told Jefferson of Paine's struggles. Paine never responded back, never mentioning. Uh, Jefferson never responded back, never mentioning Paine in his letters never responding to Paine's own. He seemed to be having second thoughts about being connected with Paine. But the problem, it turned out, would be not so easily avoided. Paine was growing increasingly desperate. He was soon arrested. It looked like his execution was imminent. And so he decided to unburden himself and write what he thought would be his final posthumous tract, The Age of Reason. It was a broadside, that's the only word for it, against religious tyranny. And the indelible connection, as Paine saw it, between organized religion and despotism. <laughs> now, the problem, though, was that this was not a popular thing to be arguing. And religious people throughout the world were deeply, deeply upset by the vision of religious renovation that Paine was offering in The Age of Reason. When the book was published, it drew immediate and sustained criticism. Clerics rushed to condemn Paine's supposedly atheistic theories. He was actually a monotheist. In the United States, they quoted over and over again George Washington's farewell address when he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Their basic argument was the same as it always was, that religion had a social function that maintained order. But now they had the terror to point to. And they could say, see, the terror is what happens when you have a government that doesn't honor God. For Jefferson, this was a deep political problem, and it was the reason for his silence. He was, by this point, a politician, not a revolutionary. And he understood, like all politicians, that you can't offend too many people and still get elected to the presidency. So as critics labeled Paine, Mr. Jefferson's affectionate friend, Jefferson decided, he was just going to lay low and hope the whole thing would blow over. He didn't mention pain. He didn't give critics ammunition. He tried to tend to his coalition 
and get elected. In the short term, it turned out to work. He won the election in 1800. And then he actually did display some courage. One of his first acts upon assuming office in 1801 to, was to invite Thomas Paine back to the United States. He even offered him a naval vessel to come back on. This was his first letter to Paine in a decade. But as you can imagine, Jefferson's letter incensed his opponents. The Gazette of the United States, which is one of um, Jefferson's um, greatest enemies, decried the very affectionate letter to that living opprobrium of humanity, Tom Paine. And then I have to take a breath at this part. The infamous scavenger of all the filth which could be raked from dirty paths which have hitherto been trodden by all the revilers of Christianity. Other papers objected more simply that a lying, drunken, brutal infidel had been invited back to the United States and complained that his presence would be an insult to the moral sense of the nation. Once Paine arrived in 1802, the outrage continued. Newspapers attacked both Jefferson and Paine together. Jefferson kept his distance. Paine started growing increasingly agitated. He wrote directly to Jefferson, complaining of a sort of shyness, which is late 18th, early 19th century speak for cowardice, a sort of shyness in the face of their shared enemies. I am not the only one who makes observations of this kind, Paine noted. Jefferson responded coldly. You have certainly misconceived what you deem shyness, Jefferson wrote. He was, he said, simply busy. <laughs> but I think it's undeniable, and contrary to, Paine's or to Jefferson's protestations, that having once told Paine to go on with his pen, Jefferson had turned much more circumspect. Why? Why? Well, it was a change in political winds, and it was a change that was already evident in 1802 when Paine got off the ship. It was already clear by that point that what historians would later call the Second Great Awakening was beginning. Millions of Americans were becoming evangelical Christians, a trend that would continue over that time. I could show you lots. I've showed you one. Sorry for the pixelation. The evangelicals here are the Methodists and the Baptists. And you'll see at 1780, they're almost negligible. Others are far more. That would change rapidly. So that by 1820, it's already three quarters. By 1860, it's even more than that. And this is just the number of churches. If I were to match the number of church members or the number of people that profess these faiths, it's many times the, uh, what, what it was in 1780. And the population is itself exponentially larger. So this is an unparalleled expansion of religious belief and inheritance in the United States in the Second Great Awakening. And the expansion almost inevitably made evangelicals the single most powerful force in American political life. Now, in some ways, evangelicals don't fit neatly into the categories that we might want to put them into. They rejected, for example, state religious establishments when state paid or supported in one way or another churches. And the reason for that was that aided their competitors and had been used to persecute them. But that did not mean that they rejected the role of religion in American public life. They thought religion was essential to American public life. And they were worried about people like Thomas Paine, who they called the sons of Belial. So as this expansion took place, they began to mobilize. And they began to create what they called voluntary associations, and what we would call civil society groups, to ensure that their religious ideals were present, if not controlling, in American public life. And the way that these groups worked as the evangelical 
kind of theorist preacher, uh, Lyman Beecher would put it, was that they would act, in his words, as a sort of disciplined moral militia that would repel every encroachment on the liberties and morals of the state. The groups would, in essence, promote a biblical ethos that would pervade American society and, more particularly, American public life, even if church and state were separate. Now, to list these groups would take too long because there are a lot of them, but they did a whole lot of things. They were soon moving throughout the culture and in states looking to prohibit alcohol, to suppress vice and obscenity, <coughs> to promote Sabbath enforcement lest anybody uh, do something they shouldn't be doing, which is anything, on Sunday, and so on. The historian Charles Foster has called this the Evangelical United Front, and it was so, so powerful, even by 1802. Now, it was this evangelical movement that ultimately made the founding one of partially realized possibility. The growth and the power of religious groups set limits on just how radical the revolution could become. When Madison or Jefferson or Payne declared that the state could take no cognizance of religion, they articulated a position in which religion had no relevance whatsoever to government. They argued for a politics as though God did not exist. In other words, a politics after God. But evangelicals went in a different direction, arguing that religion was essential to public life, and they were determined to bring it there. <coughs> In the short term, and really in the medium term, and possibly in the long term, evangelicals won. Jefferson, for example, spent the rest of his time in office distancing himself from pain. Pain grew increasingly isolated. He turned to drink into depression. By 1808, he lay dying in New York, abandoned by pretty much everyone except his doctor, who appropriately was an evangelical. His doctor asked him toward the end, do you wish to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Pain paused and then said softly in one of his last utterances, I have no wish to believe on that subject. The next year, when James Madison became president, he largely acceded to the political realities. Unlike Jefferson, he issued executive proclamations for days of prayer and fasting, and basically stepped back from his separatism. Soon, evangelical sentiments began to pervade legal rulings. A few years later, religious judges became, began declaring that Christianity was part of the common law of the nation, so that things like blasphemy were prohibited by the common law and could be prosecuted even if a state had not gone to the trouble of passing a statute to prohibit blasphemy. Jefferson was left fulminating against the judicial usurpation of the founders' intentions to no avail. The moment had closed. For most of the 19th century and into the 20th, the First Amendment was meaningless and irrelevant. Evangelical organizations grew and grew, as did their place in public life. And this secularist vision of Madison, Payne, and Jefferson struggled to make headway. This, as you can tell, is a dismaying history to me. And for a long time, I was focused on the limits that an evangelical presence created. But lately, I've been thinking how extraordinary this moment was in spite of its limits. Because what the revolutionaries did, in particular what Payne, Madison, and Jefferson did, is they put forward an idea that later generations could return to. I think, for example, of Frances Wright, the Scottish woman who in the 18-teens picked up a history of the United States by the Italian Carlo Botto. From that point forward, she became obsessed with the United States. As she put it, my attention became riveted on this country. 
as on the theater where man might awake to the full knowledge and full exercise of his powers. She even decided to visit the United States in 1818, which is frankly a weird thing to do for an upper crust woman from Scotland in the 18-teens. She didn't go to Italy, she didn't go to Greece, she came to the United States. And when she came, she reported to a friend, I saw neither princes nor bayonets, nor a church married to a state, and conceived that liberty had here quickened the human mind until it was prepared to act under the influence of reason instead of fear. She would soon change her mind about that once she encountered the power of religion in public life. But she never actually disavowed the idea that a godless politics that she saw in the founding era provided the basis for human flourishing. Or I think about the free thinker Robert Ingersoll, who spent the last decades of the 19th century traveling around the country and giving lectures with titles like individuality, or the gods, or Thomas Paine. Ingersoll never tired of pointing out to his huge and often hostile audiences. The truth is, our government is not founded upon the rights of gods, but upon the rights of men. I think also of Walter Lippmann, the Jewish journalist and public intellectual who rejected first the Judaism of his childhood, and then the public role of religion in American life. He was progressive enough that he did not look to the founding era, but he did constantly return to the revolutionary idea that you can only bring about a new world if you recognize that you have only yourself to rely on. This is how he put it in his classic 1914 book, Drift and Mastery. It is with emancipation that the real tasks begin and liberty is a searching challenge, for it takes away the guardianship of the master and the comfort of the priest. The iconoclast didn't free us, they threw us into the water, and now we have to swim. The influence of this moment, I think, even extends to the late 20th century when the post-Protestant philosopher John Rawls published his second book, Political Liberalism. In response to his many critics, Rawls put forward the idea of public reason, in his words, as a pillar on which political liberalism rests. Now, I look for a pithy Rawls quote, but it's, it's Rawls, so there's no pithy quote. This is how he explained it. The idea of public reason specifies at the deepest level the basic moral and political values that are to determine a constitutional democratic government's relation to its citizens and their relation to one another. In short, it concerns how the political relation is to be understood. What he meant at bottom was that political argumentation needed to be justifiable to everybody within a polity. Religious argumentation, particularly um, uh, uh, or because of its particularity, was not justifiable to everybody within a polity. So the rule of public reason necessarily privatized all religious faiths and made politics largely godless in an attempt to find the largest possible set of connections within a culture. I suppose it's that broadly humanistic and universalist vision that I keep returning to and the reason that this moment appeals to me. The language of the rights of man might seem exclusionary to us if we're thinking <coughs> about the rights of women, but it does depend on what you're comparing it to. If the rights of women is the comparison, it's exclusionary. But what if the relevant comparison is not the rights of women, but the right of kings or the right of gods. Madison, Jefferson, and Paine put forward what the French socialist Saint-Simon would soon call an avant-gardist vision, the mere articulation of which was an achievement. They were not able to uh, accomplish all they set out to achieve, as I said. But what they did is they offered a program that could grow over time. 
The result was a slow opening up of political potential, a new conception of, about what politics or self-government or justice might mean. And so seen from that angle, what they did was they posed a problem and a potential solution, both of which we can still grapple with today. They asked, how do we live with one another in spite difference? How do we deal with religious strife in the world? And their answer was, you can achieve peace through the privatization of religious belief and the recognition, as Payne put it, that our relation to each other in this world is as men. No more, no less. Not as men to kings, not as men to gods, but as men to men. And that, to me, seems like a still valuable insight and ultimately like a powerful political aspiration. Thank you very much.